Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 73, The Oikos and Private Life. The urban center of ancient Athens would have struck the modern eye as a curious amalgam of both public wealth and private squalor. In regards to the former, it was a city to be admired for the breathtaking beauty of its public buildings, for which in the classical period there was no equivalent in the entire Greek world. The new buildings that stood in the center of the city, both atop the Acropolis and in the Agora, which we discussed in episodes 65 and 66, seemed so spectacular, not only because they were large, well-built, and expensively decorated, but also because they contrasted so vividly with the private architecture of Athens in the 5th century BC. In regards to its housing and public amenities, though, Athens may well have been inferior to many of its contemporaries. The houses, as we will discuss, were small, poorly furnished, and quite dirty. They were crowded together, separated by windy, narrow, and smelly streets that were usually just stone alleys with a stream of filthy water flowing down the middle. And so it may strike the modern listener as quite remarkable that the Athenians, who adorned their city with some of the most splendid buildings ever constructed, were content to tolerate such discomfort in their private homes. This can be explained partly because of the climate, as life outdoors is much more possible and enjoyable in Greece than in Northern Europe. It was also because they thought that public buildings, temples, theaters, law courts, fountains, and so forth, held a higher importance than private houses. And so it says everything about the difference in mentality between them and us that nobody ever suggested that their priorities should be reversed. And it would be up to the Romans later to develop the type of luxurious domestic architecture that the rich and the famous would become accustomed to. As in most ancient cultures, and many modern ones too, the family was the primary locus of time and energy for women in Greece. And we have much more information about family life in Athens than in any other Greek polis. The basic social unit in the Greek world was the household, called the oikos. The head of the oikos was the oldest male, and it incorporated all of those living under the same roof. A typical oikos was comprised of not just the nuclear, but also the extended family, frequently with three generations living under one roof. The grandparents, the father and mother, their sons and unmarried daughters, their sons' wives and children, and the slaves. It also included the landed estate, the movable property, the livestock, and any domesticated animals or pets. Quite commonly then, there would have been about 10 people living under one roof, and often in rather cramped quarters. Only very trusted slaves would have lived in proximity to their masters or mistresses. Although we know next to nothing about slaves' living quarters, it is likely that most families domiciled them in a separate building, perhaps in some cases in a stall shared by livestock, and that male slaves were separated from female slaves by a locked door or the like. The most common pets included small birds and dogs. Cats, though, were regarded as oddities and were rarely kept as pets. Roosters were reared for fighting, a favorite pastime in Athens. Private homes, whether in the city or in the countryside, retained their traditionally modest size even during this period of communal abundance. Somewhat paradoxically, it was not until the 4th century BC, when Athens' economy was declining, that houses began to be constructed in a more luxurious style. Still though, one ancient commentator named Heraclides, who was so contemptuous of Athens, that in a fragmentary work, wrote, quote, Most of the houses are rough, the pleasant ones few. 
A stranger would doubt, on first acquaintance, that this was really the renowned city of the Athenians. End quote. Although Pericles, in his famous funeral speech found in Thucydides, spoke proudly of the elegant private dwellings inhabited by the Athenians, we would have found the majority of them to be sparsely furnished, simply decorated, and entirely lacking in the amenities of modern luxurious life. However, just like today, the cost of purchasing a home varied enormously too. In Xenophon's treatise called Oikonomicus, or Household Management, Socrates says to his wealthy friend, Critobulos, quote, I expect that if I found a good buyer, everything including the house would fetch five minai, whereas your house, I bet, would sell for more than a hundred times that amount, end quote. Unfortunately, though, the literary sources contain no detailed descriptions of homes, and very few have been excavated. One of the most serious defects in our knowledge of daily life is that there are so few remains of houses from anywhere in the Greek world dating to any period at all. Often all that survives of a house is discoloration in the earth with some accompanying debris. And since Athens is still a city that is being inhabited, remains of ancient houses are hard to find without digging up a modern Athenian's current home. We also don't have any sort of natural disaster that preserved classical or Hellenistic period homes, like we do with the Bronze Age settlement of Akrotiri either. With that being said, the best preserved classical Athenian house was found in the Attic countryside near the modern town of Vari, a few miles to the southeast of Athens. Although it is a farmhouse, its plan is probably similar to that of many urban houses in Athens. More impressive than the remains in Attica, though, are those in Olynthos, a city in northeastern Greece that was laid out in a grid pattern, as was common in the case of cities who were built with new foundations from the 5th century BC onwards into the Hellenistic and Roman periods. Even these remains, though, are meager by comparison with the remains of Roman houses found at Herculaneum and Pompeii. As you might expect, building materials for Greek homes were extremely crude. Even the more sturdily constructed houses had lower courses of irregularly shaped stones simply piled on top of one another. The exterior walls of the normal Greek house, in both the town and the countryside, were made of sun-baked bricks, sometimes coated with limestone, with walls often so thin and poorly constructed that burglars were known as wall piercers, because instead of breaking in by the front door, they would knock a hole right through their walls. As the 4th century BC Athenian orator Demosthenes once remarked, quote, Are you surprised, men of Athens, that burglary is so common when thieves are bold and walls are merely made of mud? End quote. The houses probably had a partial second story and roofs were made of wood with terracotta tiling. Farmhouses had more spaces but were still often clustered in villages, while homes in the urban center of Athens were edged tightly against one another along narrow, winding streets to the northeast of the Acropolis, in the district of modern Athens now called the Plaka. It's one of the most popular tourist areas of Athens since it's right next to the Acropolis, and visitors can walk around the winding streets, visit all of the shops, and enjoy modern Athens sitting atop ancient Athens. The streets were like this because most Greek cities, like Athens, just grew up around the Agora. It wasn't until Hippodamus of Miletus, as we discussed in episode 68 with Piraeus, that towns were carefully laid out on the grid pattern that is common today. Anyways, scant traces of urban houses have been discovered in the Plaka as well, but as we've mentioned earlier, it's not enough to provide any sort of evidence without tearing down people's homes or shops. In addition, we hear of cramped and poorly constructed apartment blocks called soinakai, 
which literally means houses together. These must have been death traps owing to the prevalence of earthquakes and the frequency of fires. Soinakai were especially common in the port of Piraeus, where many poor people and foreigners resided. Essentially, Soinakai were equivalent to the socio-economic ghettos or slums of many modern cities. Both the residences of the rich and the very poor followed the same basic design, though, which grouped the small bedrooms, storerooms, workrooms, and dining rooms around the one constant in a Greek house, the open-air courtyard in the center. The courtyard was not open to the street, however, thus ensuring privacy, a prime goal of Greek domestic architecture. This was where many household jobs were done in the open air. A south-facing roofed porch provided a place to work and relax, shaded from the summer heat or winter rain. There were, of course, bigger houses. Plato speaks of one belonging to Callias, one of the richest men in Athens, where the courtyard had two colonnades around it, each of which was large enough to allow seven men to walk abreast. We hear two of houses with their own gymnasium, wells, and baths, but normally even the homes of the nobles were much more modest. The rooms inside of Greek homes were equally simple. Interior walls were generally covered with a coat of plaster, either whitewashed or painted red. Wall paintings or works of art were still uncommon as decorations in private homes, though a few wealthy Athenians may have decorated their rooms with frescoes or tapestries on the wall. There apparently was a shortage of good interior decorators in 5th century BC Athens, though, because the politician Alcibiades took the drastic step of locking his painter inside of his house for three months until he had finished the job so that he wouldn't go off and do others. Floors consisted of beaten earth and clay. Wealthy houses might have had a stone floor, occasionally covered in animal skins or reed matting. From the 4th century BC onwards, floors of the wealthy were commonly decorated with mosaic decorations, made out of small pebbles. Windows were very small and set close to the ceiling to afford maximum protection against the weather. In the winter, they were covered with boards or sacking to keep out the wind and rain, supplemented by shutters if the household could afford them, because wood was both scarce and expensive. Doors were solidly made and supplied with locks and bars. They must have been expensive because when the Athenians residing in the countryside evacuated to the city at the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, they took their doors and shutters with them. In the southwest corner of the Vari house, we see that the foundations are considerably thicker, suggesting that a tower of two or more stories once existed. Towers have also been detected in connection with urban dwellings, though they were probably more common in the countryside. They could have been used to store foodstuffs, as well as to safeguard property and persons. We will discuss the various boundaries and ideals between the public world of males and the private world of females in more detail next episode, but for now, it should be noted that it was encountered even within the context of the home, at least among the upper classes, as literary evidence suggests that men and women, for some purposes, may have had separate quarters. The speaker in the oration by Lysias describes his domestic arrangement as follows, quote, My small house has two stories. The layout was the same upstairs as downstairs, with the women's quarters, Gynekeon, upstairs, and the men's quarters, Andron, downstairs. Then our child was born, whom my wife decided to nurse herself. However, every time she wanted to bathe it, she had to come downstairs at the risk of falling down the staircase. So I decided to move upstairs and put the women downstairs. I soon adjusted to the new arrangement and my wife was frequently able to sleep with the baby so that she could breastfeed it and stop it from crying." End quote. 
The traditional belief was that upper-class women were largely confined upstairs to the gynekion, which was either a single room or a suite of rooms, on the grounds that Greek men regarded it as a matter of honor that their wives and daughters were not exposed to the public gaze. By contrast, the houses of the poor typically consisted of only one room, divided into different living spaces by makeshift partitions, and so if the home was only a single story, then the gynekion would have been located on the ground floor, away from the andron. The women spent most of their days in this area of the house, where they did the woolworking, looked after their children, and entertained themselves. These rooms were more remote from those reserved for the men, as they were placed away from the streets in the public areas of the house. The most favored location for the Andron was on the north side of the courtyard, which was warmed by the winter sun and had its own entrance onto the street, where male visitors could enter freely. When unrelated male visitors were entertained, the women were not allowed to be present, but had to be remained in the secluded portion of the house. The unmarried women of the household and the female slaves would also have slept in the gynecheon, as might the wife on occasions when she did not join her husband. The writings of Xenophon express Socrates' perception of the role of aristocratic women as that of weaving and managing the slaves of the household, and segregation of the sexes within the household proved to be very important to the maintenance of the oikos, which was, after all, the economic foundation of the polis, through its production of marketable goods. Excavated homes tend to support this picture of segregation within the home, though with the caveat that, as we have mentioned, the overall body of evidence is small. Also, the gynechia cannot always be securely identified on the archaeological record, because the second story is no longer there. But when men's and women's quarters can be identified, which is to say when both are on the ground floor, they are often on different sides of the courtyard, and the men's rooms are near the street. The main evidence that can be cited for the existence of gynechia is the discovery of finds such as loom weights and olive presses that are traditionally associated with women, due to their economic role within the home. Sometimes in these rooms, there have been found the remains of staircases, which suggests that women might have been able to move from a workroom on the ground floor to the sleeping area above without having to emerge from the women's quarters. Cups found in rooms identified as the Andron also contain other artifacts like remnants of a wooden bench, which proved to be similar to the painted depictions of symposium found on ceramic vases. Furthermore, metal hinges and indentations on structures that could be said to be load-bearing suggest the partitioning of space for possible private functions that required limited view by members of the household. Since the andron, or downstairs room, was used for entertaining male guests, it also would have held several couches, usually an odd number, to allow space for the door, tables which could be tucked under the couches, artwork, and any other necessary paraphernalia. Because most furniture was made of wood, and because wood does not survive the ravages of time in the Greek soil, our knowledge of it derives from illustrations found on vases and sculpted gravestones. Regardless, we do know that wood was so expensive that furniture was very sparse, even for the wealthiest of families. Though if they did have any at all, it was simple and ordinary, and they were often moved from room to room as circumstances required. One of the most popular items was a chair with a curved back and curved legs, known as a klismos. Stools and tables also appear regularly, and were either round with three legs or rectangular with four. A basic necessity was the kline, which did double duty as a couch by day and a bed by night. The couches were rarely upholstered, though cushions and mattresses were common. 
basically. Although some of the furniture shown on Greek vases might seem elegant, modern sensibilities would have found it rather uncomfortable. Every household would have had chests in which clothes and bed linen were kept. These were often brought with the bride as part of the dowry or even given as wedding gifts at the time of marriage. These chests often had dried fruit in them in order to perfume the clothing. Cupboards for the storage of food do not seem to have existed though. Small terracotta statuettes served as popular adornments. Musical instruments and other objects are sometimes shown hanging from the walls, but the main display items were painted vases, such as the Lebes Gamakos, a bowl on a high stand that held the purifying water used in wedding ceremonies, which accompanied the bride to her new home. At nighttime, lamps provided the main source of artificial lighting for Greek homes. Curiously, there are very few references to lamps in the Homeric poems, even though many of the scenes are set at night. But from the 6th century BC onwards, small terracotta lamps become extremely common in the archaeological record. They were provided with a wick that floated in olive oil. Several would have been required to illuminate a single room, and often they were set on tall stands. Most households had to fetch their water from outside. Those we have mentioned, some of the wealthier homes possessed a well in their courtyard, which was cut into the bedrock to a depth of up to 30 feet. In later times, wells were lined with cylindrical drums made of terracotta to prevent their sides from crumbling into the water. From the mid-4th century BC onwards though, and following a sizable drop in the water table in Athens, bell-shaped cisterns became popular. These were designed to catch the rainwater that drained off the roof. The quality of water obtained in this way must have varied greatly at different times of the year. However, the majority of Athenians, and of Greeks in general, relied on the nearest public fountain for their drinking water. Collecting the daily supply of water each morning was an arduous and time-consuming task. For the most part, it was performed by slaves, though in the case of the poor, this chore fell to the matron of the household, as daughters would not have been allowed out unaccompanied. The public fountain was a popular place to gather and gossip, as scenes on vases indicate. Small terracotta bathtubs were also common in houses, but given the scarcity of water, only wealthy Greeks were able to fully immerse their bodies in order to clean it. Personal standards of hygiene thus varied considerably from one social class to another. Furthermore, only a few houses possessed drains for the disposal of wastewater. Sanitary facilities were simply chamber pots, called amis, into which men could relieve themselves. Women used a boat-shaped vessel called a scaphion. Urination, though, was not without its dangers, as Hesiod in his Works and Days gives the following tips about how to avoid offending the gods. Quote, Do not urinate standing upright, facing the sun, but remember to do it either when the sun has set or when it is rising. Do not make water either on the road or beside the road as you go along, and do not bear yourself. The knights belong to the blessed gods. A good man who has a wise heart sits or goes to the wall of an enclosed court. End quote. Since there were no flushable toilets, when an ancient Greek needed to perform a number two, they did so in a cesspit called copron, which was dug just outside the front door of one's home. For example, in the opening scene of Aristophanes' play, The Women in the Assembly, Blepiros defecates in the street as soon as he awakes. As for babies and toddlers, diapers hadn't been invented yet, although babies could be dangled out the window in the case of an emergency, as we see in Aristophanes' play The Clouds. Well-regulated houses possessed potties for children. 
One potty, which was found in the Athenian Agora, is provided with two holes for the baby's legs and a hole in the seat for the disposal of the waste. Its attachable stand enabled its contents to be removed without disturbing the baby. Ancient Athens today is best known for the magnificent buildings erected on the Acropolis. These monuments, though, should not overwhelm us to the point that we lose sight of the image of Athens as a city, one that possessed many of the same problems as any urban development in any period, as well as others that were peculiar to the ancient world. Despite the grandeur of its civic buildings, though, in many respects, Athens resembled a country town rather than a modern city. Most of the amenities that we take for granted today were virtually non-existent. There was no street lighting, which meant that after nightfall, pedestrians had to provide their own source, most commonly, no doubt, in the form of a lantern-bearing slave. There was no fire brigade. There were no hospitals. Their police force, such as it was, consisted of publicly owned slaves whose job primarily was to keep the peace, not to detect, prevent, or investigate crimes. Water was brought to the city from distant springs by means of terracotta pipelines that fed into public fountains. With one or two notable exceptions, the majority of fountain houses were simple reservoirs cut into the rock. Only a few major roads were paved. There were no public toilets. There was only a very rudimentary and highly inefficient method of waste disposal. Traces of a drain that began beside the Acropolis and descended into the Agora have been found dating from the 7th century BC, and in the 5th century BC, a more extensive drainage system was constructed. However, it was never remotely comparable in scale to anything like the Cloaca Maxima, or Great Drain, that ran through Rome, and there must have been many occasions when it overflowed. Individual households would therefore have been responsible for the disposal of their own waste, and there were designated dumps where garbage was deposited before being removed from the city by dung collectors. It was the duty of municipal law enforcement officers, known as astinomoi, to determine that certain minimum standards of hygiene and safety were upheld. Their tasks included ensuring that these dung collectors did not deposit the dung within a radius of 10 stades, approximately half a mile, of the circuit wall that buildings did not encroach a certain distance upon the streets, and that the bodies of those who died while traveling upon the public highways were collected for burial. The checking of such abuses, particularly the proper disposal of dung, must have been an uphill battle, and for the most part, they were unsuccessful. As a result, trash and dung piled up in the streets in vast quantities, creating a terrible stench and constituting a serious health hazard particularly in the agonizingly hot summer months. Homes in the countryside obviously could use the manure as fertilizer, but where houses were built so closely together, as in Athens in the Piraeus, the streets were quite literally ankle-deep in filth. As a result, mosquitoes, rats, and flies were plentiful, who of course carried all manner of diseases. And so the fear of an epidemic was an ever-present hazard, especially during the summer months. It's no wonder then when the entire population of Athens was cooped up inside the city walls that a plague broke loose during the Peloponnesian War. Their water supply became contaminated and the disease quickly spread and in no time the entire city was engulfed with the disease. What was true of Athens though would have been true of most Greek cities. Although some of the later Hellenistic foundations laid out according to a grid plan would have likely had better municipal features. Incidentally, these were all cities with estimated populations of 200,000 or more. It wasn't all bad news, though. There were, however, some ways of refreshing oneself. 
In addition to the wine merchants and food stalls in the Agora, one could visit the public baths. Only some cities had public bathhouses though, and even these were never remotely comparable in size to their Roman counterparts. These were disliked by some people because they complained that they made men soft, both physically and mentally. This was because hot water was available as well as warmed rooms, but they were good places to gossip, as well as to wash, and it was primarily used for washing, as they were not big enough for swimming. In any case, the Greeks seemed to have swum only when they had to, not for pleasure. There was a plunge bath in the establishment at the Piraeus, but most baths probably were only hip baths. The full-length bath was an invention of the decadent Sybarites in southern Italy, but even hip baths were better than the front-like basins at home, which had to be filled by hand from some outside fountain. You might also catch fresh air by going off to the suburbs of the city. These were known as gymnasia because they were used as places where young men exercised gymnos, or naked, literally places of nakedness. But they were not large rooms like modern gymnasiums are today. Aristophanes speaks of one, the Academy, where young men, quote, race under the olive trees, sharing the fragrance of leafy poplar and the carefree joys of spring, where the plane tree whispers to the elm, end quote. It was Cymon who had turned the parched and waterless Academy into a well-watered garden with shady trees and running tracks, another of his public benefactions, like he did in the Agora. So these places were parks with sporting grounds rather than buildings. There were three in Athens, the Academy in the Northwest, dedicated to Athena, who had twelve sacred olive trees there, the Lycaon in the East, sacred to Apollo, and the Kynosargis to the South, in honor of Heracles. They all had running tracks, sanded areas for boxing, jumping and wrestling, changing rooms, and washing facilities. But they were known too as places where philosophical talk went on. The sophists often taught here, and later they became virtual universities, with lecture rooms and libraries. Plato's school was at the Academy, and Aristotle's was at the Lycaon, for example. We will discuss these three gymnasia, the sophists, Plato, and Aristotle in greater detail in future episodes. With so much surplus wealth in the Athenian economy in the second half of the 5th century BC, as a result of imperial ambitions, we might expect that their standard of living would have risen. Archaeological evidence, though, suggests no such thing. As we have seen, the residential quarters of Athens were extremely modest. Evidently, the attainment of a luxurious standard of living was not seen as a necessary or even particularly desirable goal, though there were exceptions, of course. Particularly of note, there was considerable interest in the antics of the super-rich Alcibiades, who devoted a part of his large fortune to the training of expensive racehorses. Still though, he was an outlier, and if private luxury had been their goal, the Athenians would not have spent 2,000 talents on one of the most ambitious building programs ever conceived. Nor for that matter, would they have used the revenue from their silver mines a generation earlier to build a fleet when they could have divided that money and increased their standard of living. In sum, though a few wealthy citizens became more wealthy, most of the poor tended to remain poor. There is little evidence for the existence of a middle class, and nothing to indicate that it increased as a result of Athens' empire. What Athens' increased wealth did provide, though, was the means by which a substantial proportion of its citizens could combine leisure with relative frugality, and we talked about that idea quite a bit in episode 68 when we discussed the Greek economy and the attitude that the elite took in regards to leisure and work.
And now, let us take a short break from a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring, posting your position to job sites and waiting, and waiting, for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. So why don't you? Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. We're going to return to the household and dig a bit deeper into certain aspects of private life. The household, like every other community of Greeks, was a religious unit, and the head of the household acted as his family's priest. Many of the houses discovered in Olynthos had an altar in the courtyard, and no doubt this was true generally in the Greek world. The role of the family's priest would fall to the eldest son if and when the father passed away. It was the family's priest's duty to perform all the rituals pertaining to the welfare and prosperity of the household, in particular by making offerings, perhaps on a daily basis, to the three deities who were believed to safeguard its security and prosperity. Those being Zeus Tessios, or Zeus as protector to the household's wealth, Zeus Herkios, or Zeus as protector of the boundary that surrounded it, and Apollo Ageos, or Apollo as protector of the entrance to the house. Each deity had its own sanctified spot. For example, Zeus Tessios, who took the form of a two-handled jar, was worshipped in the storeroom. Zeus Herkios was worshipped in the courtyard, where he had an altar. And Apollo Ageos was worshipped in the form of a statuette, or a small pillar, that stood beside the street door. In addition, each home possessed a hearth that was sacred to Hestia. She had a particularly important role in the initiation of new members into the household, including new brides, newborn children, and slaves, all of whom were formally introduced to her when they were showered with nuts and dried figs. There will be more on Hestia shortly. Because all of the members of the household, as well as all of its wealth, was placed under the protection of these gods, slaves sometimes participated in religious ceremonies, though the frequency of their attendance probably varied from household to household. Overall, though, the fact that the household was a religious unit may have helped to humanize relations between freeborn and slaves by reminding the former that the prosperity of the household depended in part on the well-being of its slaves. The head of the household was also responsible for the proper conducting of funerals and for the rites that were performed at regular intervals on behalf of the dead. The goddess Hestia represents virginity and chastity. Her name literally means hearth or fireside and she protects the family hearth or the sacred fire on the public altars. Because of this, she is a goddess of domesticity, the family, the home, and the state. According to Hesiod, she is the firstborn daughter of Kronos and Rhea, and so she's the older sister of Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Hera, and Demeter. 
In the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, Apollo and Poseidon sought for her hand in marriage, but Hestia refused, and swore to retain her virginity forever, as Aparthene. She thus rejected Aphrodite's values and became, to some extent, her chaste, domestic complementary, or antithesis. Aphrodite could not bend or ensnare her heart, as the hymn puts it. And so Zeus then bestowed honors onto her by assigning her the duty of feeding and maintaining the fires of the Olympian hearth with the fatty, combustible portions of animal sacrifices to the gods. In all temples of the gods, in whatever food was cooked or an offering was burnt, she received her share of honor. And so the hymn rightly points out that, among all mortals, she was chief of the goddesses. Despite her chief status amongst the Olympians, there are ambiguities with Hestia, as she has indeterminate attributes, character, and iconography. Since she stayed at home on Mount Olympus to attend the hearth, she has very few adventures and generates only a minimal amount of mythology. She is identified with the hearth as a physical object, and the abstractions of community and domesticity, but portrayals of her are rare and seldom secure. In classical Greek art, she is occasionally depicted as a woman, simply and modestly cloaked in a head veil. She is sometimes shown with a staff in her hand, or beside a large fire. She sat on a plain wooden throne with a white woolen cushion, and didn't even trouble to choose an emblem for herself. In some stories, Hestia did not have a throne at all. In others, she gave up her throne for Dionysus. Furthermore, at Athens, there was a discrepancy in the list of the twelve Olympian gods as to whether Hestia or Dionysus was included with the other eleven. The altar to them at the Agora, for example, included Hestia, but the east frieze of the Parthenon had Dionysus instead, and so on some lists she was dropped for Dionysus, and her omission is most likely due to her passive, non-confrontational nature, as she is seen to have given her Olympian seat to the more forceful Dionysus in order to prevent heavenly conflict. But no ancient source or myth describes such a surrender or removal. One scholar has also reasoned that since the hearth is immovable, Hestia is thus unable to take part in the procession of the gods, so in the Greek mind, she held an entirely different role than the other Olympians. Nevertheless, Hestia was a deity of great symbolic significance and was worshipped throughout the Greek world. Attesting to the respect given to her in the divine hierarchy, the phrase af Hestias, or starting with Hestia, means that when household sacrifices were offered, she was invoked first and was offered the first and last libations of wine at feasts. Like the other Olympian deities, Hestia also received animal sacrifices, usually in the form of a pig. At the Panhellenic sanctuaries at Delphi and Olympia, her altar constituted the collective hearth of the Greeks, and every Greek city had its own public hearth in the Prytaneion, or a kind of town hall in the Agora, that functioned as her official sanctuary. Inside it, there was an altar with an ever-burning flame, always paying tribute to the goddess and serving as an emblem of civic unity. It was also here that foreign ambassadors were entertained, following an invitation to dine at the public hearth of the city. The hearth was also the center of the Greek home, and as a family altar, it was the site of many domestic rituals, such as sacrifices before a meal and the formal acceptance of a newborn baby into the oikos or household. And so the hearth was deeply rooted in family life, and not surprisingly, it came to symbolize the sanctity of the Greek oikos. The accidental or negligent extinction of a domestic hearth fire represented a failure of domestic and religious care for the family, and the failure to maintain Hestia's public fire in her temple or shrine was a breach of duty to the whole community. 
a hearth fire might be deliberately ritually extinguished at times, and its lighting or relighting would have been accompanied by rituals of completion, purification, and renewal. With the establishment of a new colony, a flame from Hestia's public hearth in the mother city would be carried to the new settlement. The meaning is that Hestia was seen as the center of the Oikos, the polis, and all Hellenes. Responsibility for Hestia's domestic cult usually fell to the leading woman of the household, sometimes to a man though. Hestia's rights at the hearths of public buildings were usually led by holders of civil office. Dionysus of Halicarnassus testifies that the Pretanian of a Greek polis, where the sanctuary of Hestia and the hearth was located, was served by the most powerful state officials. Evidence for her priesthoods is extremely rare though, and most information stems from the early Roman imperial period. Hestia's nearest Roman equivalent is Vesta, who also held similar functions as a divine personification of Rome's public, domestic, and colonial hearths, and bound Romans together within a form of extended family. And now let us take a short break for a word from another one of our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is also brought to you by Simple Contacts. I recently tried an app called Simple Contacts, and it saved me so much time and money on ordering contact lenses. Because if you're like me, you probably dread that annual eye appointment to renew your prescription. Well, Simple Contacts brings the doctor to you. Do you need to renew your prescription? Well, take the five-minute vision test from your phone or computer. It's that simple. It's then renewed by a licensed doctor, and then you receive a renewed one-year prescription, and then you can then reorder your contacts. Do you already have a prescription that hasn't expired? It's simple, just upload a photo or your doctor's information, and then order your lenses. Simple Contacts offers every brand of lenses that you're familiar with, including options for astigmatism, multifocal lenses, colored contacts, and more. And their prices are unbeatable, standard shipping is free, and best of all, they're offering a promotion to my listeners. To save $30 off your contact lenses, just go to simplecontacts.com grease18, or enter promo code grease18 at checkout. Again, that's simplecontacts.com slash grease18, or just enter promo code grease18 at checkout. Warning though, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, but it does offer you convenience, speed, reliability, and savings in updating or renewing your prescription. And now, let's turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. We will examine certain aspects of private life next by taking a look at what might be called a typical daily routine for an ancient Greek. But first, let's define what we mean by the term day. The Greek day was divided into 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness, a system which the Greeks acquired from the Babylonians, at least according to Herodotus. They didn't have daylight savings time either. As a result, the daylight hours were longer in the summer than they were in the winter. Hours also were not subdivided in halves and quarters or anything like we have nowadays. In fact, the only way to tell the time accurately was by means of a sundial, which was first introduced into Greece in the 6th century BC, and which they also borrowed from the Babylonians. Sundials, though, were extremely rare and could be found in only a handful of Greek cities, at least up until the Hellenistic period. The natural divisions of the day, dawn, midday, and dusk, then no doubt served most people for most purposes. The day started early, sometimes even before the sun came up. For example, Socrates, in one of Plato's dialogues, is woken up by a young man and key friend of his who had heard that Protagoras, 
the famous sophist, is in Athens and wants to go and see him as soon as possible. Socrates persuades him to wait until it gets light though, so they talk for a while in the bedroom as the visitor sits on Socrates' couch. This couch, with its woolen blankets but no mattress, might well have been the only furniture in the room. This was an atypical scene though. Most didn't sit around and chat, as getting up in the morning was a rapid business. Shaving and washing were left for later in the day, and so they simply got dressed, ate breakfast, and went about their day. After a day spent either at work, loafing in the agora, and performing any sort of recreational activity, before the sunset, you made your way home, where you had your dinner, washed up, and then went to bed. The next day was to start at dawn again. Judged by modern standards, ancient Greek clothing was uniform and utilitarian in the extreme. In fact, it was almost impossible to make a fashion statement by adopting an exotic or provocative style of dress. There was one exception, and he was the exception for a lot of things, as we have discussed. According to Athenaeus, the blatant attention seeker Alcibiades was notorious for wearing a type of special shoes that were even named after him and for his extravagantly purple robe. This hardly seems to us to constitute a serious aberration, yet the offense that these clothes caused indicates how conservative the dress code must have been. To the extent that fashion of some kind existed, it must have changed very slowly. Most Greek clothing was made out of wool, although over time linen became common. Cotton and silk were rare, and thus were considered much more luxurious. The production of fabric was a long and tedious process making ready-made clothing expensive. Because of this, apart from footwear, we do not hear about any trade in ready-made clothing, and so almost every piece of clothing was made on the loom in the home under the supervision of the head lady of the house. It was socially accepted that textile making was primarily a woman's responsibility, and the production of high-quality textiles was regarded as an accomplishment for women of high status. In order to make any garment, the wool first needed to be cleaned and scoured. Then the matted fibers were separated from one another with a comb by means of a semicircular instrument known as an epinetron, which fitted over the thigh and knee, providing a slightly roughened surface upon which the wool could be teased out. The wool was then dyed in a vat. Next, it was spun by hand using a distaff, spindle, and spindle whorls in what was known as the drop and spin method. Finally, it was woven into a fabric on a loom. The warp was suspended from a crossbar, and its strands, known as the weft, held taut at its ends by loom weights, were threaded together by means of a shuttle. Once made, the cloth was rarely cut. Almost every garment was rectangular in shape, and it required very little stitching. Because very few items of ancient clothing have survived to modern times, our knowledge derives mostly from descriptions in contemporary accounts and artistic descriptions on vase paintings and sculpture. The basic article of clothing was the tunic, and there were two different kinds of them. The one that was a bit shorter than knee length was called an exomus, which literally means off the shoulders, because it was fastened at the left shoulder with either a pin or a knot, allowing the right shoulder to be bare since most people were right-handed. In fact, left-handedness was typically associated with evil and criminality. Plato was convinced that one's limbs are naturally of equal strength and ability, and that left-handedness can be blamed on inept mothers and nurses who failed to adequately school their children in the correct way of doing things. Aristotle, on the other hand, believed that a person's handedness was natural and inherited, so left-handed people were just naturally wicked.
Anyways, left-handed people still wore their eczemas the same as those who were right-handed and were forced to adapt and not stick out as being different. The eczemas was typically worn by athletes, warriors, slaves, or those doing manual work. For more formal occasions, there was the longer chiton, which was a more refined version of the eczemas. It was fastened at both shoulders and fell down to the ankles. To deal with the bulk, sometimes a strap was worn around the neck, brought under the armpits, crossed in the back, and tied in the front. The excess fabric was then pulled over the strap and fastened around the waist. The fold it created was called a culpus. The Greek man also wore a hymation, a large rectangular piece of wool that was draped over the man's left shoulder, and the back end was brought around his right arm and across his front. It then either was passed back over his left shoulder or draped over his left arm. The surplus material hung down, covering his entire body down to his lower legs. It was considerably longer and thicker than the eczemas or chiton, and thus it provided a great deal of warmth and movement for the body. In cold weather, the hymation could be pulled up to cover the head, or to cover up emotion and shame, sort of like how we implement modern hoodies. It could be worn either on top of or without a chiton. Hymatia were often dyed and embroidered with a patterned border. In vase paintings, those wearing a hymation were often depicted leaning on a stick, which suggests that it was favored by old men. There was also another type of cloak called the calamus. It was shorter but thicker than the hymation and was commonly worn by travelers, hunters, and soldiers. There is some evidence to suggest that in the classical period, the clothing worn by Athenian men became simpler and less ornate than it had been in the archaic period. According to Thucydides, quote, the Spartans were the first to adopt a moderate costume, and in other respects, too, the propertied class of Athens changed their way of life to correspond as closely as possible to that of ordinary men. End quote. Furthermore, some Athenians, known as Laconizers, adopted the Spartan dress code by wearing long hair and paying little attention to their personal hygiene. And so it's clear that some sort of simpler change, at least, took place in the classical period. Women's clothes were equally simple. In earlier times, Athenian women wore the peplos, a long, heavy woolen garment that fell to the ankles and revealed little of the figure beneath. It looked rather like a very loose-fitting dress. The peplos hung from the body, folded over the top by about a quarter of its length. The turned-down material was attached to the shoulders by two pins, and the garment was supported just above the waist by a belt, which produced the drapery folds so often seen in Greek sculpture. Parts might be dyed purple or enlivened with woven geometric motifs. Embroidered decorations, though, were rare. But in the mid-6th century BC, the peplos was replaced by the lighter and finer chiton made of linen. Because the chiton hugged the body more tightly than the peplos, it was more revealing of one's figure, which may reflect a modest change in attitude towards women's sexuality at the time. It was worn without any overfold and was held in place by a series of pins along the length of the arms. Whereas the peplos was sleeveless, the chiton had loose, elbow-length sleeves. It also was fastened around the waist by a belt. The Athenians were of the opinion that the woolen peplos was a Doric invention, whereas the linen chiton was ionic. More likely, the change was a reflection of the increased wealth of the Athenians in the mid-6th century BC, since linen, which was more costly to produce than wool, had to be imported. As Herodotus reports, though, the Athenians gave a more sensationalist explanation, like they often do. 
They claim that after disastrous defeat at the hands of their arch nemesis, the Agenetans, only one Athenian managed to escape. When he returned with the news of the disaster, the wives of the men who had died in the battle were so outraged by the fact that he alone had escaped that they stabbed him to death with the pins of their dresses, demanding as they did this deed that he would suffer the same fate as their husbands. As a result, the Athenians made them change the way they dressed to the Ionic style because it did not require any brooches, and thus it would prevent such a heinous act from happening again. Regardless, bronze dress pins 18 inches in length have been found in excavations, and they would have been more than adequate enough for that task of stabbing. The woolen peplos remained popular in other parts of Greece though, especially in the wintertime, for which it was ideally suited. Athenian women, like their male counterparts, would have worn the hymation outdoors, often draped in a similar way to the men. Although men's hair is depicted long in archaic sculpture, regardless whether it was ornamentation or representation, in the classical period we know that the Athenians cut their hair much shorter. The Spartans, though, still preferred the longer hair. Plutarch in his Life of Lycurgus writes, quote, In wartime, the Spartans relaxed the harshest aspects of their training and did not prevent young men from beautifying their hair and their armor and their clothing, happy to see them like horses prancing and neighing before competitions. For this reason, men grew their hair long from adolescence onwards. Especially in times of danger, they took care that it appeared glossy and well-combed, remembering a certain saying of Lycurgus concerning hair, that it made the handsome men better looking and the ugly more frightening." End quote. Generally speaking, freeborn men favored beards and mustaches, whereas slaves were often completely shaven. It was Alexander the Great, though, who first made a clean-shaven chin fashionable and chic. Beardlessness was thus adopted by the Hellenistic rulers who succeeded him, and no doubt many ordinary people as well. Suddenly, anyone with a razor could model himself like the most powerful men in the world. Though older Greek men probably continued to wear beards, because, well, when you age, you eventually stop caring about keeping up with the younger generation's fashion fads. As one might expect, hairstyles for wealthy Athenian women were quite elaborate, as they wore their hair long in a variety of styles. Some plaited it in tresses, others piled it up in a bun, either at the nape of the neck or on top of the head. Scarves were also commonplace, covering part of or all of the hair. Athenian women only let their hair down literally and figuratively on special occasions, notably at festivals and funerals. This gave them license to indulge in much freer behavior than was permitted to them at other times. Some women even bleached their hair or dyed it. Female slaves, though, wore their hair short and covered it in a hairnet called a caryphalos. Ornamentation in the form of jewelry, such as earrings, hairpins, necklaces, fastened tight around the neck, pendants, bracelets, diadems, and rings were frequently worn by well-to-do women. They were made from a variety of materials, but the ones most commonly used were gilt terracotta, copper, and lead. The more expensive items were made of silver and gold. Few pieces of gold jewelry have survived from the archaic period, but in the classical period, goldsmiths produced highly intricate work, utilizing techniques such as filigree, granulation, and chasing. Jewelry wasn't just for the women, though, as infants of both genders were commonly given amulets to ward off evil. The only item of jewelry, though, that commonly was worn by men was the signet ring, which was used to put a seal on private documents and merchandise as a mark of ownership. Seal stones were made of both precious and semi-precious stones. 
In most cases, the artist would cut the image into the stone, a technique known as intaglio. Less commonly, the image was in relief. Expensive seal stones were frequently buried with their owners because they were among the most personal items they possessed. Greek men and women did not wear what we would consider to be underwear in the modern sense. They did wear a triangular-shaped article of clothing known as a perizoma, which roughly translates as loincloth. It seems to have served mainly as an apron and was used by athletes, priests, soldiers, cooks, among others. Women could wear these too, but it was rare. A simple cloth band, called a strafion, served as a brassiere for women. It was a wide band of wool or linen that was wrapped across the breasts and tied between the shoulder blades. As we have alluded to, large pins, called paranai, were worn at the shoulders, facing downwards, to keep the garments in place. Other accessories used by women include the ripis, a flat object with a wooden handle that they could use to fan themselves. Another was the skiadon, or an umbrella, which was more often used as a shield against the sun, rather than as protection against rain. Both men and women could pull up the fold of their hymation to serve as a kind of hood against the sun and rain as well. During their travels, men often wore a flat, broad-brimmed hat made of felt or straw called a patasis, which they tied under the chin. When not in use, this often hung loose at the back of the neck. This is the hat typically seen on the god Hermes. Workmen and slaves wore a conical cap called a pelidion. Women were less likely to cover their heads than men, though in the Hellenistic period, they are often depicted wearing a sun hat with a broad brim and a pointed crown. The simplest form of footwear was the sandal. Fashionable women sometimes wore platform heels. All shoes and sandals were made of leather. On long journeys, men sometimes wore short, laced-up boots, turned over at the top. However, although sandals and boots were fairly common, many Greek men went barefoot, even when performing military service. And in the home, both men and women usually went barefoot. Perfume was popular among both men and women. It was sometimes imported, but more often than not, it was made locally by boiling the petals of flowers and mixing it with olive oil and herbs. It was then stored in charming little bottles called Eriboloi. Another highly prized perfume container was the Alabastron, so named because it was carved of alabaster. Male athletes typically applied perfume to their bodies after exercise, as is indicated by grave reliefs that show them carrying a small bottle attached to their wrists by means of a leather thong. Male guests at a symposium also liberally sprinkled themselves with perfume. It was a sign of beauty in a woman to have a pale complexion, which is why women on vases are typically depicted with whitened faces. Their paleness was a natural consequence of spending most of their time indoors, and so women rich enough not to have to work maintained very pale complexions, which was admired as a sign of an enviable life of leisure and wealth, much as an even all-over tan is valued today for the same reason. However, some women sought to enhance their natural appearance by applying makeup. They also applied round spots to their cheeks and darkened their eyebrows with the suit produced by lamps. Eyes, eyelashes, and lips were painted a variety of colors. Not everyone approved, though. Xenophon in his Oikonomicus tells us of one husband, a crusty old man named Iscomachus, who complained about his wife wearing too much makeup. He said, quote, one day I noticed that my wife had put makeup on. She had rubbed white lead onto her face to make her complexion look paler than it really was, and rogue onto her cheeks to make them look rosier than they really were, and she was wearing platform heels to make her look taller than she really was. 
These deceits may in some measure take in strangers, but it is inevitable that people will be found out when they constantly associate with each other. End quote. He later goes on to say to his wife, quote, You are to assume, my dear, that I do not prefer white paint and red dye to your real color, but just as the gods have made horses the most agreeable things to horses, oxen to oxen, and sheep to sheep, so also does mankind think the human body in its natural state to be the most agreeable thing. End quote. Iscomachus concludes by saying that she should, quote, mix flour, knead dough, and shake and fold the cloaks and the bedclothes. This will increase your appetite, improve your health, and add redness to your cheeks, end quote. Though we do not hear about his wife's reaction to his chastisement, we can safely assume that she was not convinced by his line of arguments. Regardless, this won't be the first time that we come across Xenophon's character of Iscomachus, as he has quite a bit to say about a woman's proper role in the home and their secondary subjugated status to their husbands. Even though Athenian women exercised power and earned status through their roles in both the family unit and the public and private religious spheres, their absence from politics meant that their contributions to the polis were often overlooked by men. One heroine in a tragedy by Euripides titled Melanippe, which survives now only in fragments, vigorously expresses this in a famous speech denouncing men who denigrate women. Quote, Empty is the slanderous blame men place on women. It is more than the twanging of a bowstring without an arrow. Women are better than men, and I will prove it. Women make agreements without having to have witnesses to guarantee their honesty. Women manage the household and preserve its valuable property. Without a wife, no household is clean or happily prosperous. And in matters pertaining to the gods, this is our most important contribution. We have the greatest share. In the Oracle at Delphi, we put forward the will of Apollo. And at the Oracle of Zeus at Dodona, we reveal the will of Zeus to any Greek who wishes to know it. Men cannot rightly perform the sacred rites for the fates and the anonymous goddesses, but women make them flourish. End quote. And this is where the fragment of Euripides dies off. But it's a good segue into our next topic the areas in which Athenian women contributed to the polis, publicly by acting as priestesses and privately by bearing and raising legitimate children and by serving as managers of the household's property, which will be the topic for next episode. So join me next time for the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 74, Marriage and Domesticity.